Hello, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, featuring today's top directors sharing behind-the-scenes stories of their latest films and insights into the craft of directing. The Director's Cut is now available on Spotify, so please take a second to subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Peter Hedge's new drama, Ben is Back. The film tells the story of Ben Burns, a young man who unexpectedly returns home on Christmas Eve after spending time in a treatment center following a heroin overdose. While his mother is happy to see her son returned, she is worried about his ability to remain clean and ready to do everything in her power to keep him and the rest of her family safe. In addition to Ben is Back, Mr. Hedge's credits include the feature films The Odd Life of Timothy Green, Dan in Real Life, and Pieces of April. He also shared an Academy Award nomination for Best Writing Adapted Screenplay with Chris and Paul Weitz for their script to the 2002 feature About a Boy. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. Hedges spoke with director Craig Johnson about filming Ben is Back. During their conversation, Mr. Hedges discusses why he wanted to make a film about addiction, courting surprise through his writing and directing, and how Julia Roberts helped convince his son, Lucas Hedges, to be in the movie. Thank you all for coming out on Hello. Saturday night. It's Saturday, right? It is Saturday? Yes. Friday. Close, Friday. though. Oh, yeah. You know, I'm sorry. That's <laughs> embarrassing. I know I'm in L.A. I know that. You know when those politicians That's... say, hi, hello, New Hampshire, and they go, you're in Oregon. And they go, I just have one of those moments. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I think I want it to be Saturday because I'm going home on Sunday. That's it. But, but anyway, forgive me. I'm really happy you're here. Well, that's a I, wonderful introduction that just lightens the mood after your no, I'm beautiful I, and the, the, the comedy, the human comedy, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, harrowing but heartbreaking movie. Mm. Um, so thank you all, yeah, for coming. My name is Craig Johnson, uh, and this is Peter Hedges. Hi. Um, Thanks. So congratulations on this film. Um, I uh, am curious. I'm, I'm sure you know you're in your your circuit of talking about it. So so uh, I, I was trying to think of ways of asking questions that you've inevitably heard before, but 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 new ways into them. We'll see we'll see how I do. Um, but in terms of the the origin of this movie, I did read in an in interview that uh, you do come from a family um, where members struggled with addiction. Yes. And uh, I was curious to what degree that played into this story uh, or... A huge uh, part of why I wanted to uh, write about the heroin opioid epidemic, um, even though that's not the only reason I wanted to tell this particular story, but that aspect of it um, had to do with a close friend who overdosed and died, my favorite actor ever overdosed and died, and a relative of mine... Uh, nearly died from overdose. And I just found all this loss untenable, and I felt um, that I wanted to understand why it was happening. Um, in my early days, my mother was an active alcoholic. She, uh, well, alcohol walked her out of the door when I was seven, 
And then I got to know her when I was 15 as a sober mom. The way I said that, it sounded like I was the sober mom, but I think you know what I mean. She was the sober mom. And, and I got to know this really remarkable being that was so kind and loving. And I, I didn't know her um, consistently that way ever before. And so um, anyway, I, I just have felt since the election um, uh, uh, frustration about um, what, what, what to do and how to make more impactful and urgent work, felt that I needed to um, stop the projects I was working on and try to make more meaningful work. And so this is what I hope is the first of several films I'll make um, that address uh, parts of uh, this complicated, broken time we live in. Parts of. I don't like how I said that, but what I mean is, you know, we're just we're in a brokey, broken, bumpy time, and and I want, like I'm sure a lot of you want, to be finding our way to tell the stories that we have to tell, and doesn't mean they're all going to be this dark or hard to maybe experience, but but they need to be, um, they need to come from a place of. Uh, uh, I, either stories I can't wait to tell or stories I have to tell. And I, I, I wanted to make meaning out of the epidemic. I wanted to make meaning out of the loss and, and um, put a, something into the world that would be a part of a bigger conversation. I also really wanted to write a love story uh, about a hard thing. I'm, I was, I'm interested in um, a character in the character of Holly as someone who will not give up on another human being. And I, I would, maybe that's what I would like in my mother, or maybe that's what I would like to be if, as a parent. I hope I'm that parent, even though I think she makes a zillion mistakes, and she needs to go to Al-Anon, and she needs some help. I mean, I'm, I'm aware of the mistakes she makes, in the, in, but I also understand that she's in an untenable and I'm overusing the word, but she's in a situation that is unmanageable, and there's kind of no right way to do it, um, and every situation's different. I'm rambling a bit, so why don't I stop no, no, and let no, you ask another all. question? <laughs> no. Well, I, I'm, I was curious, as you were sort of coming up with the story, um, and given um, your mother, did you ever consider telling the story of um, a mother who was struggling with uh, a kid who, I guess that would be something that might have been more autobiographical? Uh, or, and then another way of asking that is, is, is why did you choose to make it sort of uh, from the mother's perspective with a son who was struggling? Sure. I, I was interested in... Um writing about a young person who was struggling because I, I'm, I'm both deeply inspired by so many young people right now, Lucas, uh, Catherine, who were both in the film, the young people uh, from Parkland, those kids that endured that horrible tragedy and then became so activated. I, I'm, I find young people super inspiring 
but I also think there's a whole bunch of them that are flailing and lost. And so I always thought it would be uh, about a young person. I never thought about it the reverse. I thought, though, it was going to be a sister and a brother. And that's what I started to write. Um, and I have a sister who would go anywhere and everywhere on my behalf if I were in, at risk. She would. So that wasn't kind of hard to imagine. But uh, I thought about um, when I was in college, I was reading Walt Whitman's journals about the Civil War. And when he described the battlefield and he described soldiers dying, he always talked in his writings that uh, the soldier who was wounded or about, you know, in their final moments never cried out for the, their wives or their fathers. They always called out for mom or mother. I don't know if they said mom back then, mama. And, um, and I thought that because I wanted it to be a love story loosely inspired by the first half of Orpheus, Orpheus going into the underworld to bring back Eurydice, that, that the great love, that fiercest love of all, if, that, if your mother loves you, nobody loves you quite like your mom, that just, when I made that switch, the, the, the script just, it just started flying. And so I just trusted that. Probably, now that I think about it, it was my, maybe it's a fantasy of mine that if I were in that trouble, my mom would go to the lengths that Holly goes for Ben. But I wasn't conscious of that. Um, I also feel like there are uh, actors of that age who are female, are underserved, uh, except for this year. There are just a lot of great performances by women of a certain age. Um, it's really been exciting to see so many great parts for women being written. But um, I also love writing for women. Um, I just, I, I, it's, I feel liberated when I write for women. And I, um, I wanted to write a great part and hoped that I could attract, you know, one of the Mount Rushmore of great women actresses. And, and I, I, Guess I succeeded because she's fantastic in this film, isn't she? I mean, I think she's it's just such an uncompromised performance, and I love how she is with Lucas and their energy together and the way they gave to each other and played off each other. It was, as you know, I mean, when when you cast a movie well and the actors spark to each other, you look so much better as a director. <laughs> And and you kind of just go well. I'd love to say well, because I you can't made that happen. You can't invent chemistry. You can. It has to be there on some level, right? And I mean, look, the history of Hollywood is filled with films. So then you read the story that stories that actor A couldn't stand actor B, but we watch those love stories and think, oh my God, they're so in love, and they didn't. You know, so we're fooled all the time. But it. Uh, um, my my films really benefit um, by generous actors, actors who are open to play off of each other and with each other, and because um, I don't I don't um, 
and more so on this film than any other, I tried to not come in with a very set idea of what I wanted a moment to be. I felt that would be, I think Julia would have been great with, she would have either done what I wanted or not, and it would have been better whatever she decided than I probably had plans for. But certainly directing Lucas, um, because I'm also blessed to be his father, I felt like it would be very smart if I could lean into a kind of directing style that I'd begun to develop over my previous films, which was that I come with an idea of, of knowing what the moment means in a scene, but not necessarily how it needs to play. And, um, and that, so my direction of actors was much more, like, I wonder, I wonder what would happen if, or that felt really alive. What if we just try to go in an opposite direction just to see? You know, those are, so, so what I tried to do is just create a safe environment that allowed them to play off each other. We shot often with two cameras, but um, almost always, in fact, but to have a shooting style that allowed for it to be as organic and as alive between them. They weren't improvising much. I mean, there were a few instances where the, they maybe twisted the language a bit, but mainly they spoke the words I wrote I mean, very faithfully. But, but there was an improvisational feel in the, in the behavior and in the life. And so I, I try to court surprise when I write. So there are lots of things that happened in the script, not by the third or fourth draft. I'd go, oh, I know that's going to happen. But in the early drafts where things would happen that surprised me, you know, and that, it's that wonderful feeling of if, if I'm surprised, maybe hopefully you will be too. But I also try in the shooting of the film to create a, an environment where they can surprise each other and, um, and we can all be surprised by, um, by what occurs in the moment. And a lot of that's born out of the fact that I trained as an actor and my acting teacher had, I had the great pleasure of studying with one of the greatest acting teachers in certainly the 20th century and maybe in the history of the world, Sanford Meisner. And he, his technique is taught all over. Um, many of our great film actors from Robert Duvall to Diane Keaton to Gregory Peck, they all studied with him um, but he really had a belief about acting that, that um, he wasn't so much interested in the method or sense memory or working from your own ideas, but he actually trains you to put your attention on the other person, and the other person puts their attention on you. And if you, if you really do the work as he suggests, you will never do a scene the same way. It will never be repeated identically because we're human and what you do in a scene, you will slightly change what you do and that will slightly change what I do because I, in my acting, will make you more important than me and you will make me more important than you. Does that make sense? Anyway, it was, it was, it's been a very helpful uh, part of my directing career because I, I came to wanting to direct not because I was a frustrated writer who felt that he'd been so wronged in 
and I didn't feel that. I but I felt like sometimes when you write a script, you're like preparing the party, you're decorating, you're getting the everybody. You know, you're doing the invite list and you get everything ready. And then when the party starts, they say, "Hey, good job. Um, we'll see you later." And so I'm kind of walking out the door when everybody's coming for the party, and it. Not really, that's what's happening. But it kind of felt that way. And I kind of thought, well, if I'm going to plan the party and I'm going to invite all the guests and pick out the menu, I want to be at the party. And, but mainly it's I wanted to be with, I wanted to, um, I just, I love actors. And, um, and they're everything for the kind of film I make. Well, let's talk about one actor in particular. There's this young upcoming actor who I, I predict good, big things for this kid named, yeah. named Lucas Hedges. Yes. Uh, you know, I think a lot of parents with kids that show interest in performing, you know, look at their kid and say, oh, you know, my kid's got something. He could really make it. In your case, this is sort of transpiring. Was there a moment uh, when Lucas was growing up or maybe around yes. uh, closer to Manchester? When was it for you? Did you say, this is, this is different? There's something sure. happening with this no, kid. It, it, if I'll try to tell it quickly. Um, Lucas, um, he was always a kid who, um, even the home videos, those home videos and Boy, have you seen Boy Erased? At the beginning of the film, there are these home videos. That's my camera work. I'd just like to point out. I'm not in the union, but, but those are my home videos. But as a little boy with the home videos, he always loved to say, let me see, let me see. He liked to, me to flip those cameras so he could see himself. But that didn't make me think, oh, he's going to be an actor. No, I didn't think it at all. Uh, but he got cast in a production of Nicholas Nickleby. He went to the same um, school that Lena Dunham went to and Jennifer Connelly and Zach Posen, the designer. Uh, it's a school where they don't have any grades and the kids write poetry and do African dance. And it's a very, I mean, it, we all wish we'd gone to, the, I mean, it's a great school. And um, so he did, he was in Nicholas Nickleby and he played the role of Smike, who's a crippled boy. And um, I remember my office was right near the school and the day of the first performance, I uh, came walking out of my office to go home and get a quick bite before going to the play. And I ran into all of Lucas's castmates. And I said, where's Lucas? And they said, oh, he's preparing. So, okay. So I go to the play, and in the first scene, he comes out on stage, and everybody, they're, they're, everybody's very, they're animated and very good actors. I mean, they're really good kid actors. But Lucas comes out on stage, and he's kind of standing in the half light, so you can kind of see him. And he's not acting. Everybody else is acting, and they're very good. It's the kind of acting I did when I was that age. It's the kind of acting you probably did. Not Lucas. He's, he's the boy. He doesn't think he's the boy, but he, he feels real. And they start to beat him in the scene. He's being beaten because they're bullying him. And he bends down, and he comes up, and his eyes are filled with tears. And the entire theater, I, this is my memory of it. Now, Lucas is like, no, this is not what happened. But this is what happened. I felt the entire theater go, <gasps> and the 
theater got still. I haven't felt a theater that still since I f- saw John Malkovich play the guy in the red sweater in 1981 in Balm and Gilead at Steppenwolf Theater in Chicago. He walked on the stage in the last minute of the play and the entire theater went, <gasps> it felt like that. It was just insanely powerful. At intermission, a rather prominent actor whose kid goes to the school came up to me and said, you realize, don't you? And I said, what? He said, you realize. And what he was saying was, that kid is, he's other level, something's happening. At intermission, I go to go to the bathroom and I see a bunch of high school kids. I happen to know these kids. I just know a lot of kids at the school. What are you doing here? Why are you at the middle school play? They said, well, it was assigned. I said, wait, they assign you to come to the middle school play? I said, nope. We were assigned to come see Lucas. So that play, that moment, he was, other, he was next level. What then happened was I was casting a film for Disney, doing a big national search for kids, and my wife calls me up and says, you're going to be very proud of me. And I said, what? She said, well, this casting director had seen the play, Nicholas Nickleby, and has called and asked Lucas to come in for a movie. And I said, no. And I said, well, why'd you say no? And she said, because some of our friends had said, who are in the business and pretty successful, said, never let your kids be in movies. It's a terrible thing. Wait till they're 18. Don't let them be in movies. And I remember she's saying this to me, and I'm looking at my wall in my temporary office on the Disney lot, and I have kids' pictures you know, pinned up to the bulletin board. I mean, just a wall of pictures. And I said, well, then I'm going to hell. And she said, what do you mean? I said, if I thought kids being in movies would ruin their lives, I'm going to hell. I had 10 kids in Dan in real life. I'm looking for two kids now. I don't think being in movies will destroy any kid's life as long as the parents aren't trying to, one, live through the kid or live off the kid. And it can be a great experience. I think the kids who've been in my films have, I'm, I'm, we're so determined that they, they're still kids and that they have a, a great experience and their parents are kept close and it's healthy. And I mean, I, so, so I said, why don't you just ask him what he wants to do? Have you thought about that? And she, she said, oh, that's actually a good idea. So a day later, she calls me up and she says, well, I asked Lucas. And I said, what did he say? And she said, well, he had, he said, well, Mom, I have one question. And she said, what? And she said, is Dad directing the movie? And he said, she said, no. And he said, then I'm interested. So and, what changed between then and now? Oh, we'll get to that. But that's how he ended up in Moonrise Kingdom, which is what a great first experience, right? Wes Anderson, all those kids. It was like being at summer camp. He had a wonderful, wonderful experience. Here's what changed. Um, uh, I think... Um, part of why he didn't want to be in a film of mine is, and it still happens, and I'm I'm sorry about this, that there's, and I get it, you know, that, that there's a perception of nepotism. Um, I mean, the, the truth is, um, I, I, I wish I had puppet mastered his career. I wish I could say I did all this. If I had that power, I would be Paul Thomas Anderson or David O. Russell or... Uh, you know, one of those brilliant directors from South America who are just crushing it with every film. I I would be Steven Spielberg. I don't... He had a gift in seventh grade, and Wes Anderson saw it, and then Scott Rudin saw it, 
and then Noah Baumbach saw it, and then Wes Anderson saw it again, and then Terry Gilliam saw it, and then Jason Reitman saw it, and then Lisa Cholodenko saw it. And all of these directors who are in my pantheon of directors I want to be as good as kept casting him. And then he started working with Christoph Waltz and Francis McDormand and Saoirse Ronan and, and Nicole. I mean, he's just had these great series of experiences. And what happened was I wrote this script. Um, it really wrote me. And I went to meet with Julia, and I came armed with a list of actors. Lucas was not on that list because he wasn't going to be in a film of mine. And he wants me to be his father. He has many directors, but he gets one dad. And I was like, that's a fair deal. I would rather be your dad than be one of your directors. So I, I was okay. Um, I did write a script that I hoped that he and his brother, who doesn't isn't an actor but works in finance, but I wanted both of them and my wife to go, wow, I'm proud of dad or my husband, depending on the person feeling the pride. And, and I, I wanted that. I wanted that. I wanted to get back to making a film like Pieces of April or writing what's that kind of feeling I had about what's eating Gilbert Grape when I wrote that novel and then got to write the film. So I wanted all of that. And what happened was I met with Julia, and she hadn't committed to do the film yet, but she said, Lucas needs to play Ben. And I said, well, he's not available, first of all, because he was supposed to be doing a play at that time that ended up getting pushed. But um, he's, and he doesn't want to do a film of mine, and, I, and, I, and I'm not going to pressure him. And she said, well, no, he, he, he's got to do it. And I said, well, you haven't even said you're doing the movie, so why don't we solve that problem? <laughs> and and uh, she started sending pictures of her. She has her older son, has red hair, kind of the same color as Lucas's. And she said, see, in the text, say, see how young men with red hair do with me. We get along. And my wife said, you cannot show those pictures to Lucas. You just can't do that. That's going to be... Too much pressure and I and I agreed and I said but I'm really getting stuck because this is what Julia wants and I want Julia to do the film and what happened was when she said I want Lucas to do the film then I started to dream of it and um, so we ended up um, uh, finally showed him the pictures he started to hear from his friends who were going to come in and audition because the script had been leaked because I, I knew I wanted to make the movie as soon as possible. Um, he, he asked to read the script, and I really believe him. He read it because he just wanted to be supportive because he knew this was like a rebirth for me writing the script. And when he read it, he, he, and he knew of Julia's interest, and he, I think he felt that um, because of the damage I'd experienced as a son of an alcoholic, and because I'd almost lost this relative, and I was still reeling from the losses that I've previously mentioned, he felt that this might bring some healing to our family. And, and so he gave me a tremendous gift by doing the film. Um, it was really a gift. So that's the story. Sorry it took so long. Wow. But um, um, one of the things I admire about this movie is that it is such a, a, a personal movie. It is such a character piece. And yet there is this kind of thriller element mm -hmm. um, driving it along. When you were coming up with it, did you, 
were you consciously thinking about embracing sort of more of a, a thriller genre, or did the story come out more organically? It, I was so shocked when I sent it to uh, our our producer, Nina Jacobson, our first producer who signed on, who I just sent it to as a to say I'm about to send it off to the usual suspects who make movies like this. Who, and I said, I just want you to read it because you're producing such interesting things and you've been so important in my life, um, just so you can see what I'm up to. And she read it in 93 minutes and texted back and said, I have to produce this film. And she said, you've written a page turner. And I went, what, what, really? I didn't think about that. What I tried, all I tried to do was capture the peril I felt as a little boy when I didn't know if my mother was going to be driving over the hill with the car swerving. I didn't know if when she served the fried chicken, if it would be raw or actually cooked. And what I imagined I would feel if I were Holly and my son came home and I so wanted him to be okay, but we had this history, which is hinted at with not explicitly explored or told, spelled out, that what I would feel if, if and, and how I have felt in my own life in the people who are active or who have been active, how everything that is said and done is reviewed, re replayed, um, kind of has to be considered with the awareness that th there are secrets, there are ghosts, there's a pull that is so massive that it could at any moment spin out of control. So by just trying to write to the truth of that, I ended up writing uh, something that had a kind of tension that is not in anything else I've ever made. I've had moments, there's some tense moments in Pieces of April, there's some tense moments in Gilbert Grape, but they, they, they just have different rhythms. So um, I was terrified to shoot the second half of the film because it, it did, I mean, I was aware that the story starts to accelerate and it didn't feel it was in my comfort zone. I'm increasingly interested in not being in my comfort zone um, I, I think, you know, it's, it's good to be nervous. There's a healthy nervousness and, and I definitely felt it here. And, um, and I, I think some of it's successful. Some of it, I, I feel like I could have done better to be honest. Um, but, uh, you know, that's, I mean, do you find that experience whenever you've made anything, you look at it and you love parts of it and parts of it you don't love and then, that part you don't love, somebody comes up and says, that part, I'm so glad that part was there because it's the part that really impacted me. And I went, so I, I mean, it was the great William Goldman who said, nobody knows anything. And, um, and the much missed already, William Goldman. And, and, and so increasingly, I just believe in best effort. You just make your best effort and try to have right intention and, and um, hope that the films of use to some people and be confident that if it's not, um, there are so many other films that can speak to you. I once had a, I published three novels and I once got a letter from somebody 
said, I, I read your novel. I hated every page of it. And I wrote them back and I said, why did you keep reading? Or write and, me. Yeah, or write me. Well, but why did you keep reading? There are so many books to love. I, obviously, I didn't write a book with the hope that it would feel like it wasted your time. That was, that was the best book I could write. I mean, I, I worked a lot of years on that book. I mean, so many years. So there was no idea to torture you, believe me. But there are so many books. So go find one and love it. And, you know, that's how I feel about film, too. You know, when Lucas, the only, I want to say this, because if you're a parent and you go on a trip, like a Lucas was a squash player, competitive squash, and it's a very tough sport, like only 100 kids play it, but in seriously of a certain age, and he was one of those kids, and he was really good. And we'd go to these tournaments, and the one thing we'd do is I'd bring along a bunch of DVDs. I'd bring 10 or 15 DVDs, and we had the five or 10-minute rule where we'd put in a movie, and I'd say, we give it 10 minutes or five minutes, and then you decide if we keep watching it. And I remember he was about eight or nine. This is, you're going to go like, really? You did? I put in Manhattan because it's, I think, a masterpiece. And I put it in, and we watched about 10 minutes of Manhattan. I said, what do you, you want to keep going? He said, yeah, let's keep going. And so, so we had these wonderful father-son trips where he was playing squash, but in between matches... We watched movies. And I think that, if there's nepotism, there it is. I, I showed movies to my kid, and we talked about them. There we go. There it is. Nepotism. I think we have time for one more question. Uh, I was, so backstage, you were mentioning that you, that you have maybe, maybe four or five other movies kind of already floating around in your brain. And I'm curious, uh, most of what you've done is sort of hovering, you know, a drama-comedy hybrids. Uh, this one in particular, pretty straightforward drama. Are there other genres that you're interested in? Or do they all kind of... What are these? some of these other ideas without being... No, I, I would say every mature. one of them is set in the present day. I don't have any interest in doing a period film. Or uh, one of them has a bit of magic in it. The other three are pretty um, raw and real. I hope some of them will have a, more humor um, than this film had. I, I tried, I didn't try to make bring humor to this, but I tried to, I was happy when it emerged organically. Um, but no, I, I think um, I heard once Lucinda Williams, the great Lucinda Williams on an interview on NPR, uh, she just she was had just put out this album. I think the album is called Blue. I may have the title of the album wrong, but there's a song on this album called Blue. And uh, they asked her, this album seems a little different. And this is actually going to sound contradictory from what I've been saying, but it, it was the, the spirit of her answer was, she said, well, you know, uh, when I was younger, I tried to write songs that were really, they were really high in my register and really low. And she said, I'm 47, and I just wanted to write songs that were pleasurable for me to sing. So she'd narrowed, she kind of narrowed her range vocally. But the songs are, there's nothing compromised about the songs. They're so raw and real and... They're what I would like my films to feel like. 
But what I liked about what she was saying was that she'd reached a place of acceptance. So what I would say is I've come to accept that I want to write about family. I may write a funny film about family. I might write a sweet fam movie about family. But family is the most important thing to me. Um, I grew up, I had a very broken family that endured just unthinkable sadnesses. But we also had incredible moments of grace and love. And so I, I just, I'm drawn to writing about family and I'm kind of comfortable at 56 years of age that that's what I want to write about. But, and, and all of the stories that I have in me have a family component in them, the four that I imagine, um, the one I've almost finished writing. But they deal with other things too. Um, but I feel like when I make a film, I try to make it, like we become a family when we make the film. You know how that is. I mean, you spend more time together, all those nights and days and all those hours. And I think that's the, that's the beauty of the filmmaking experience is this business of other people, how... I mean, I love watching credits on films, even films I didn't make, because it's just such a reminder that no film's made alone. And um, that has nothing to do with your question. I found some way to go. No, to it that. does. And movies about families. Movies, movies about families, and and Regardless and, and of kind of under. Um, last um, thing, Sanford Meisner, when I was trying to be an actor, he one day said, at, he said, I'm going to cast you as a villain. And I was so excited. I said, "That wow, it's amazing. He said, why, why is that amazing? And I said, because no one ever cast me as a villain. And he said, hmm, what parts did you play in college? And I told him, oh, I played an 81-year-old Russian manservant and a 55-year-old Swedish manservant and a 65-year-old Jewish college professor and a 45-year-old British college professor. And he said, oh, stop, stop. And I said, what? And he said, I wish your teachers were here right now. And I said, why? And he said, because I would kill them. And I said, why would you kill them? And he said, because they killed you. And he said, I'm not going to cast you as a villain. Maybe 10 years or 20 years from now, that would be in your nature. That's not in your nature right now. And the artist's job is to understand his or her nature and, and move toward it. It's tricky because it doesn't mean that you don't push yourself in new directions. This film, for me, that thriller aspect was a new direction. That, that's not something I've done before. But that was only in service of the story. So I think, I think it keeps coming back to, for all of us to try to find um, those stories that, you, you know, not that only I can tell. I don't think I'm the only person that can write about this epidemic or write about a family dealing with it. But this particular story, the, this, is, this one was in my was in my nature but it was also in my my ache my yearnings my fears but it it i knew it when i was writing it because it was it was writing me and it doesn't mean that they're always easy some projects we do are it's all about muscularity it's all about just pushing through and sometimes we need other people to egg us on which i find really recommend who are those people in your life 
who you turn to, who read what you've written or review what you've shot, you know, that handful, that small cadre of wise, good friends who tell you when you're full of shit, but also tell you to keep going when no one else will. Um, Again, I, I'm so off topic. I, I'm, that you're all here is a testament either to the fact that you have nothing in your lives, and and I'm kidding. I know no, you. No, I think what lives. you're saying is making sense and, and okay. resonating to all. I hope so. so. And I apologize for the digressive nature of things. This is about my nine thousandth Q and A. You have hit me with things that others haven't. Um, thank you so much for coming out tonight. And thank I hope you. you have and wonderful lives. Thank you for your film. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more, you can find past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. Stay tuned for more episodes, including our upcoming Meet the Nominees series, which will feature panel discussions with DGA award-nominated feature film and documentary directors. And be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Also, if you're enjoying our podcast, please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow cinephiles find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally 